This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Chris McNally is a U.S.-China relations expert and political economy professor at Chaminade University. He's also an adjunct senior fellow at the East-West Center. McNally has been closely tracking the developments in the last several months since he was a guest on the show here and we last talked. He shared his thoughts with us, uh, his thoughts with us, in light of the global demand for medical supplies. Overall trade is down because uh, even though trade in medical equipment is up through the roof, trade in so many other things like auto parts, some electronics is really down. The Chinese have ramped up production of medical equipment very, very rapidly. So just using face masks, 9,000 almost new companies have come into existence that are producing face masks in just the last two months. Face mask production in China has jumped from about 20 million pieces per day up to almost 120 million pieces per day from the beginning, which was late January, and then you had Chinese New Year up until roughly mid-March. So within a month, they have sextupled their production of face masks. Now, a lot of those face masks and a lot of the new companies that have come into this sector are not very well qualified. So you end up with a lot of shoddy goods as well. That's been a big problem over the past month. There's been shoddy tests coming from China that were discovered in Spain, face masks in the Netherlands and many other places, Turkey as well. And now the Chinese have put in new rules trying to control the amount of shoddy goods that get sent abroad. And that, in turn, has really disrupted uh, the whole trade. It's, it's a nightmare for brokers and people importing these things because the rules change almost daily. And again, China is by far the biggest producer. Uh, it's the most flexible global manufacturer on a large scale. And so people are still really dependent on China. And there is a concern because we need respirators. And I think that's one of the things that's out there. So those are the better quality masks, the N95 masks. And the Chinese also produce quite a few of them, though not as many as the normal kind of surgical face masks. But what about ventilators? Well, ventilators uh, is a different story. Uh, again, the Chinese are the biggest producer, uh, but we're ramping up production in the U.S. as well. And so far, it seems that besides uh, the greater New York area, the so tri-state area, and some other hotspots such as Louisiana, we have had, been having enough ventilators, so it's not been quite as bad as in Italy on a nationwide scale. Uh, and we're ramping up production of these ventilators. And again, you know, the Chinese are the biggest producers and we've been importing from them as well. I haven't heard much about shoddy ventilators coming out of China. It's been more face masks and test kits. Besides the medical supply issue, you know, what about the broader trade issues? Well, the broader trade issues have been basically on hold. You had the trade agreement that was signed back in January. Uh, the people were more optimistic that at least there was a ceasefire in the trade war. Nobody expected things to improve wholesale, mainly because the Trump administration was still targeting Huawei and other Chinese telecoms and high-tech manufacturers. So the high-tech war never actually stopped. It was just the broader trade war and especially the tit-for-tat tariffs. The Trump administration has lowered tariffs uh, on a range of Chinese goods uh, and did not implement the ones they threatened to. On medical equipment, they actually abolished those tariffs uh, back in March. Uh, but there's still tariffs on some medical equipment that probably are not very beneficial for the U.S. economy, but then the highest tariffs around 8%. So it's, it's not that consequential. And what are you seeing as you track, let's say, the drug industry, the pharmaceuticals? Well, the Chinese are a very large pharmaceutical producer, though the big hope actually for ramping up production of a 
vaccine might even be India, which is another very, very large, you know, developing country pharmaceutical producer. Uh, both India and China have enormous capacities and are able to ramp up production very rapidly. Uh, so they will certainly come into play if something such as a vaccine or better treatment methods are being developed. Uh, just also simply because they're two of the largest markets or they are the two largest markets in terms of population. So uh, they will be playing a very important role. Uh, but for the time being, what China really is exporting are the things you mentioned, respirators, ventilators, face masks, personal protective equipment for medical personnel, gowns, goggles, etc. We have seen headlines here in the U.S. where some of our masks that were produced here I think were sent to China initially, and I think I read somewhere that the president had put a stop on a shipment that was supposed to go to Canada. So, you know, how are you looking at that when we have shipments here from the U.S. that are supposed to go to other countries? To begin, using tariffs uh, as a political method to force your trade partners into making things that you want them to do are, is generally not a very effective method because the counterparty will uh, retaliate and then you get into a tit-for-tat trade war and trade wars cannot be won and the Trump administration has just proven it once more. Bans on exporting or importing things are even worse uh, and again don't work. So you ban uh, the export of face masks to a country like Canada, well then if we need something from the Canadians they're likely to do the same to us. In a globalized economic system with integrated supply chains, generally these methods actually hurt the perpetrator more so uh, than the victim. Uh, it, it's for sure a pyrrhic victory. Uh, you don't gain much out of it. The same is true for Trump's trade war with the Chinese, which now actually influences us because we need a lot of things from the Chinese, and they're not necessarily that eager to export to the United States as they might be to Europe, uh, with, whom, you know, with whom they've been keeping a much better economic relationship, not without its problems, but there were no tit-for-tat tariffs. So this whole idea that you can close off an economy, ban imports or exports. Another issue that is really important, we banned Chinese travelers coming in in late January, and then the administration was asleep at the wheel thinking, oh, we solved the problem. Well, it turns out that the big hotspot, the tri-state area, most of those cases were imported from Europe, from Italy. So you cannot stop a pandemic just by, you know, closing off one thing or the other. Uh, It it needs to have a much more integrated and coordinated approach. And unfortunately, that's one of the things I fear most for the future is is that we'll remain stuck in a place where borders are closed and there are constant, uh, you know, quarantines or rules affecting people, how they move from one country to another, uh, which could be really bad long term for the global economy. I do worry about manufacturing in China because, you know, I've seen factories where the housing is not great and you've got workers packed into barracks and and you just worry about the spread of disease in places like that. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that because actually the big outbreak in Singapore uh, was caused by exactly this workers living in very close quarters. And in the United States, we've been having problems with meat packaging plants uh, and similar food processing uh, enterprises where we've had big, big outbreaks. Uh, The Chinese, when they went back to work in late February, actually have tried to keep workers apart. So, you know, single workers to rooms or have workers, you know, uh, live outside the factories. 
So far, we've had no major outbreak in a factory in China. It's been more residential areas. You know, there have been some early indications uh, that there were transmissions in cinemas, so the Chinese closed down their cinemas again after just opening them for a few days. But to believe the figures coming out of China, we've only had like 10-something cases yesterday, 13, I think. They have been able to keep things under control, but we must understand that there are quite draconian rules still in place in China. People can move around freely, but uh, they have cell phones, they have apps, you know, where they have to prove that they are green level. That means, you know, that they are not being uh, infected or they haven't been close to anybody who has been infected. They've been doing a lot of social distancing. Uh, Consumption is still really down. Chinese malls are still really empty. So, you know, the, the economy is still really taking a hit in China. But manufacturing actually has been able to ramp up. And it seems that they have been able to control the spread among workers by, you know, spreading them out, uh, good hygiene, face masks, uh, taking meals individually, uh, etc. And what's the one thing that maybe you're struck by as you kind of monitor all these reports out of China? Uh, the one thing I'm struck by is indeed that they've been able to keep infection rates this low, uh, whether that's really the case or not. And they have two infection rates. So one infection rate, uh, the 13 I just mentioned, is people with symptoms. They have 40-something people that are asymptomatic. But the degree to which the Chinese have been able to manage this, and again, schools are still not open in China for the most part. They're still kind of uh, managing this, you know, gradual opening up. And as I mentioned, the economy is not doing very well. Consumption is still down. But, you know, they're one example of how one can manage it. There are other examples, the South Koreans and the Germans, who are now starting to open up as well. And the South Koreans actually never totally locked down the way we have, uh, and yet have been able to to manage this disease, this pandemic quite well. In the end, honestly, Catherine, it comes down to one thing, testing, 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 and then contact tracing, effective isolation and quarantine. Those are the methods that we have at our disposal right now that can make a big dent and allow economies to open up at least partially. Do you feel comfortable with the numbers that we're hearing out of China? I'm doubtful, uh, but uh, I've been reading up on you know the various outbreaks that have been reported, uh, how they've occurred, what has happened. Uh, one, there's a very scary story of a Chinese woman coming back, Chinese citizen coming back from the United States, uh, where she had permanent residency, arriving in Harbin, up in the northeast of China, and then being tested one, twice three times, turning up each time negative. They had her quarantined for a few days, quite a few, almost 10 days. Then she went back home and she infected her neighbor. And only then she tested positive. So, uh, and that actually created a whole outbreak in the area in Harbin where they've been having quite a few problems. Uh, there's also been outbreaks up at the border close to Russia. But it shows you that the Chinese are, are managing this very, very strictly. I mean, foreigners cannot even travel to China, even uh, if we have a valid visa. Only Chinese citizens can come to China. Then they quarantine all of them in designated areas for 14 days and do various runs of tests. But uh, it's likely to be more, I think, anywhere. I think anywhere we go, death rates, infection rates are underreported, heavily underreported. Uh, I think the New York Times has been doing a very interesting study looking at, you know, historical, how, much, how many people died in a certain area and then how many people died in the last month or two. So, you know, those are, those are kind of indicative of how much underreporting is happening globally because we just don't have a handle on it. One thing to underscore is, is that maybe from the point of view of the Chinese, just to kind of give folks, uh, you know, that perspective. I mean, they made big mistakes, several big strategic mistakes, including actually congratulating themselves after the pandemic was successfully controlled or at least contained, uh, you know, of, of having done a good job. But then we also have the same problem in the White House where, you know, there's a lot of self-praise going on. It's just hopeful for the Chinese that, you know,
know, in the end of this, that, you know, relations with the U.S. could turn better. It doesn't really look like it. I think they're really just hoping that all of this might lead to a change in government in the United States and the possibility for a new start. It doesn't look like things will ever return to the way they were back in 2015 or earlier. But right now, it, it, it's such a mess with both sides you know, trading in allegations and, and, and a blame game. And, you know, Chinese even have put forward a, an absolute conspiracy theory that it was the U.S. Army who spread this thing. You know, th this is really, really concerning. And, and just hopefully, you know, things look once the, the height of the pandemic is over, it'll probably take quite some time until we have really totally controlled this. But uh, that, you know, cooler heads prevail and, and U.S.-China relations could at least, you know, on the working level, uh, get to a point where we can interact, cooperate with each other, and, and we need each other. We really do in these times. That was Shamanad's political economy professor, Chris McNally, an expert in China-U.S. relations. He's also an adjunct fellow at the East-West Center. And it's now time to take a look at what else is happening in other places around the world. Britain now has Europe's second most COVID-19-related deaths, while many of the world's elderly are taking measures to protect themselves. A 98-year-old doctor in France keeps practicing. Here's the BBC with the latest headlines. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 29th of April. I'm Nick Miles. The U.S. economy has been hit by its biggest downturn for more than a decade. Do your genes determine how badly you suffer from the coronavirus? And the French doctor still working through the crisis at the age of 98. The US economy has shrunk by nearly 5%, ending its longest period of growth in history as the coronavirus virtually shut down the country. The fall for the first quarter of the year is the sharpest since the financial crisis of 2008. Samira Hussein has more. These latest growth numbers account for only the first three months of this year. But the bulk of the shutdowns in the U.S. began in the month of April and are ongoing. That means figures for the next quarter will be even more dramatic. Economists are predicting a contraction at a rate of 20 to 30 percent. The International Labour Organization has warned that about half of all workers worldwide are in danger of having their livelihoods destroyed because of the pandemic. The ILO says those with informal work arrangements are most at risk. Guy Ryder is the Director General. For 1.6 billion workers, their livelihood has been massively impacted by what is going on. Uh, and these are people who earn very little on a good day. And their incomes are going down by an average of 60% in the first month of the pandemic effect. These are people in desperate straits and they need our help. Britain now has Europe's second highest official number of deaths from the pandemic. The British government has changed the way it counts deaths to now include people who have died outside hospital, taking the total to above 26,000. The adjustment added more than 3,800 deaths in one go, but they covered the period from the beginning of March. A study suggests genes may determine how badly people suffer from coronavirus. Professor Tim Spector, who's leading the research at King's College London, says millions of people are now using their tracing app in the UK, US and Sweden. Within this group, there are about 3,000 twins. And what we found was that when we looked at the similarities in the identical twins for their symptom reporting, it was much more similar than the non-identical twins. So any difference between these groups must be due to genetics. We need to really collect all this symptom data, which may be different from country to country. We were told when it came from China, it was just this persistent cough and fever. But when it hit Europe, we're seeing all these other weird symptoms. Either the virus is different or, more likely, 
our immune systems genetically are different and therefore present with different symptoms. The US aircraft manufacturer Boeing says it's cutting its workforce by 10% due to a steep fall in travel demand. The company, which reported a quarterly loss of $640 million, is also reducing production of its main commercial planes. The Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has reiterated calls for an independent investigation into the coronavirus outbreak, despite anger from China. This is a virus that has taken more than 200,000 lives across the world. It has shut down global, the global economy. Now, it would seem entirely reasonable and sensible that the world would want to have an independent assessment of how this all occurred so we can learn the lessons and prevent it from happening again. China's ambassador in Canberra has rejected calls for an independent review and suggested China could boycott Australian goods. Twelve European Union member states have appealed for a temporary change to an EU law that obliges airlines to compensate passengers in cash for cancelled flights. They said it placed airlines in a difficult situation when they were faced with a serious cash flow challenge in the coronavirus pandemic. They proposed the use of vouchers instead. The High Court in Uganda has ordered MPs to hand back $2.5 million they'd allocated themselves to fight the coronavirus, more than $5,000 each. The move by Parliament had been widely condemned. President Yuweri Museveni said it was morally reprehensible, as the money was supposed to go to special task forces set up to fight the pandemic. Around the world, older people are being warned to avoid exposure to coronavirus. But in France, one doctor is still working at the age of 98. Christian Chenet was running a surgery in Paris and is now helping at a care home. Everybody is really scared. I am very careful. My wife is terrified I could bring the virus home, and she's right. But I can't just abandon them in the midst of this virus epidemic. They wouldn't be able to manage on their own. Nevertheless, I try to do most of the work over the phone. There's the risk that I carry the virus with me when I go see them. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, an energy company continuing to supply fuel to Hawaii's communities with a commitment to health and safety. PARHawaii.com I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll find out what contact tracing is all about and how it helps to flatten the curve. We'll also talk about the technology behind contact tracing and how mobile devices can be used as sensors to determine proximity to COVID-19. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. At the beginning of the week, we looked at distance learning underway in public and private schools, pre-K to 12. Today, HPR's Kuvehi Ishii joins us live to talk about what's happening in immersion programs in uh, regular schools and charter schools. That's right. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, like many parents and families across the state right now, grappling with uh, juggling their own work schedules or work from home schedules and their 
their uh, child's uh, education or distance learning. Hawaiian immersion parents are also adapting to these to these COVID-19 school closures, but it's different in some instances because the child for Hawaiian language immersion, you have a child that is enrolled from 745 to 345 all day entirely immersed in Hawaiian language. And some or most, I should say, of the parents that have enrolled their, their children in the program might not speak Hawaiian. And so you have the children at home sort of confused about whether or not, you know, which language am I supposed to speak all day because they'll have uh, sort of a reduced schedule. So I got to speak to the uh, Ohana Abril there from Kona, Leonani, and Sheldon, who have three daughters in the program. They've got twin girls in preschool. And then they've got a uh, first grader at Kekulo Ehunui Kaimalino, Kona's Wine Immersion uh, Program, and she's in the first grade, Kaliko. So all three have distance learning, uh, Zoom classes, at least three, uh, no, they have it for three times, uh, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and sometimes several times a day. Uh, in the instance of the preschoolers, they'll have a one-on-one with their teacher, but it's severely reduced from a normal, you know, five days a week. Uh, all this exposure to the language. And so the pandemic has really forced these English-speaking parents to try to up their games in terms of using more Hawaiian language around the home to sort of show their child that, okay, I'm going to try to mimic what they would have gotten in school. So uh, in speaking to Leonani and uh, Sheldon, we'll hear from both of them uh, in this soundbite about what it's uh, kind of shown them or the lessons that they've learned from this experience. Kaikuri education, it's, it's really a, an ohana thing, yeah? Like, they have to, they have to really get involved in their, their education. Otherwise, you know, it's easy for the child to just go to school, come home, and that's the only ohana they'll ever use because they'll never use it at home because they know parents won't, won't understand and they won't speak it. You know, this is a good time to see what your children are learning and to, to learn with them because you have, like, a little time in your schedule to find a class or even just learn with them, like sit in their, their yeah. Zoom class with them and just listen in because that's uh, Lil Nani. So she's actually a, a special education teacher who is uh, at Ehunui Kaimalino, who is going about her regular business as a teacher while trying to keep her three j- daughters occupied uh, with their homework. And uh, Sheldon is a software engineer over at HMSA, also full-time schedules and trying to juggle this. Uh, but uh, both have been trying to find other resources uh, to learn the language or be exposed to it. So even things as, as uh, easy as hula or going outside and trying to incorporate the language in other uh, in the home in ways that the students may not have been exposed to otherwise. I love it. I mean, because the parents are really getting, you know, the education as well. Right. And, and, you know, prior to COVID-19, there were uh, there are efforts uh, in these schools, mainly the uh, Ahapunanaleo schools, to hold weekly classes for parents called Huikipai Pai, where they come into the school and they kind of get uh, an idea of what their students are learning. They get some language lessons, and that is what a lot of administrators and teachers are saying is really help some of these parents who are left really to their own devices to try to take care of their child's uh, Hawaiian immersion education. Uh, but the Abrils, like many uh, other parents in uh, Kayapuni or Hawaiian immersion, have been a bit worried that their children might be set back in terms of language development, right, because of the reduced schedule 
And at this point, we don't know when uh, children will be back in school learning and immersed like they used to. So we reached out to Kamil Dean, chair of the UH Manoa Linguistics Department, and he uh, specializes in childhood language acquisition. And he said they've actually done some research up at UH, not specifically on uh, immersion students necessarily, but anyone in a language learning context who then children who then are removed from that context. And here's what he had to say. And so uh, my concern is that if uh, the Hawaiian immersion schools don't go back until, you know, sometime in the fall semester or even possibly in early 2021, um, that will be many, many months during which the children will not have had sustained exposure to Hawaiian. Uh, and from all of the attrition research that we've done over the last few decades, we know that it only takes a couple of months for a child to lose that minority language. So um, I'm hoping that resources can be drawn towards the immersion schools um, so that they can begin to make up for that gap. Um, and it's, it's particularly important for, for language immersion because there is a, a, something called the critical period. Uh, mm -hmm. If children are at, say, age 8, 9, or 10, and they suddenly go into a situation where they're not getting this minority language, by the time this pandemic is over, that critical period may be over for them, and they may not be able to acquire the language to a native-like ability. So that was an interesting takeaway, and I know um, as we go through this, obviously this is sort of the first time in the history of uh, the movement of the 36 years of trying to normalize um, Olala Hawaii here in Hawaii. Uh, that we've seen a pandemic. So this is the first time we're seeing this. We will see if our linguists will be doing some research to see uh, what that impact looks like. You know, I, I have to uh, wonder because I know they had that lawsuit. I think it was on Lanai, right, about yes. uh, having a equal access to immersion programs. The Clarabal case, yeah. The Hawaii Supreme Court did uh, rule in that case that uh, increased resources were uh, needed for Hawaiian immersion schools. And I think we might uh, see that coming up in the conversation as we work towards recovery. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. All right, well, thank you so much. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR's Ku'uvehirishi about Hawaiian language learning in some of our schools during the COVID time. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mason, a Hawaii firm combining architecture and historical consulting with a commitment to preserve, adapt, and influence the built environment. MasonARCH.com More than ever, our hearts and minds need a bit of respite and calm in an increasingly chaotic world. HPR provides the service because we believe in the power of classical music to provide inspiration and comfort. But you know who else feels this way? Our loyal station members who provide critical funding for music programming on HPR too. This is Jose Fajardo, President and General Manager of HPR, with a word of thanks to all of our supporters. Your support makes a huge difference. Inspections in our care homes, that historically has been always a boat of contention across the state. It's also the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats politics and opinion editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning. 
Good morning, Catherine. So you have a story about a Lenny Gill uh, diving mm. into this issue. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Civil Beat has reported a lot on the, the lag time for the Department of Health to inspect adult care homes, residential care homes, uh, assisted living facilities, uh, foster care homes. Uh, you could even add nursing homes. We're talking about places where uh, 2,000 of our Kapuna live across the state. And Eleni's story adds another twist to that. Because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19, some care home operators and their supporters have been surprised that the inspectors are showing up because it's kind of freaking out the patients as well as the people that run these facilities. After all, they are the most vulnerable, perhaps the most vulnerable population that could potentially get sick. Even if family members are now not allowed to visit these facilities uh, because of the, the danger of infection. And yet the Department of Health is showing up sometimes unannounced, something that they can do under the law to say, hey, we'd like to check out your facilities. So what's the problem? <laughs> well, that's one problem is that, gee, it's, maybe this isn't the best time. And another problem that's really got a lot of folks freaked out is that these inspectors from the Department of Health are showing up only wearing a face mask. They're not wearing a full PPE certified, if you will, um, face covering, a mask, a, a, that plastic shield. They're not wearing surgical gloves. They're not wearing gowns. And most critically, they're not wearing booties, coverings, disposable coverings of the feet uh, because they're not taking their shoes off. And that is something that has really surprised people because not only is that a custom here in Hawaii, right? You take your shoes off whenever you arrive at somebody's home, but apparently there's some confusion getting advice from the federal government about whether you have to. The, some agencies, Medicare and Medicaid, say that you've got to actually wear those shoes because it's like going to a grocery store, right? You, can, you cannot go into a grocery store without shoes. And other people counter, wait a minute, this is not a business. A care home is not a business per se. It is somebody's home. You're really upsetting a lot of people. And by the way, those shoes could bring in uh, potentially diseases. Well, I'm just wondering, you know, did they take off their shoes before? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. I don't think a Lenny story uh, answered that question there. So I, I, that's a, you know, I'll see if I can get an update for you on that one. But it's been a sudden change in policy. It only went into effect this month. And uh, Lenny did talk to Keith Redley. He runs the section of the Department of Health that coordinates these inspections. And, you know, there was a law passed here saying you should do unannounced random inspections. That's the best way, perhaps, to try and find out if something bad is going on. So Ridley was asked about this, you know, what if you show up only wearing a mask? And Ridley says, well, if the care home gives us full PPE, well, then perhaps we'll put that on and do the inspection. But that's not as satisfactory to people who run these facilities. They want to just hold off on these inspections until after the COVID-19 pandemic lifts. That would probably be to the best interest of all people involved. Right. But uh, I, I can see where the health department would say, well, no, we need to make sure that uh, uh, our Kapuna uh, are right. protected during this time as well. Absolutely. That is their job. In fact, they have a contract with a company called Community Ties of America, which did not respond to Eleni's questions, but um, you know that is something that the Department of Health is required to do to make these inspections. So we'll see if some sort of middle ground can be uh, reached. But uh, right now, there seems to be little middle ground to reach. <laughs> right. So uh, it it's really over the shoes. 
<laughs> yes, I mean, it got, yeah, exactly. So yeah, but th- it, that's a big part of our culture here, and so yeah, you you can see both sides. You can see both sides. Yeah, and just to stress, care homes are homes. That's mm-hmm. where folks live. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to uh, Chad Blair, the political and opinions editor for Honolulu Civil Beat. To read Eleni Gill's story, head to civilbeat.org. With much of the nation on standby in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis, how have our legal systems been affected? Social distancing measures have led to questions about child custody exchange, and delays in unemployment benefits are causing some to consider legal action. Just last week, the White House announced plans to enact a 60-day ban on the issuing of green cards, which has led to a larger discussion on immigration law. Where to turn to when the laws seem to change daily and legal recourse is unclear? According to Tatiana Johnson of the Legal Aid Society of Hawaii, our rights are out there and we just need to know how to access them. Johnson spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about legal resources in the time of COVID-19. She says that rent, housing, and landlord-tenant law is a big concern for many Hawaii residents. Definitely housing issues, evictions. Right now, the courts are closed. So it's not an urgent issue in terms of people physically being removed from their rental units. But when the courts reopen, I think that's going to be a big need unless there's changes from either the federal or state government. So we've been hearing a lot about how landlord-tenant law has been affecting people. Some landlords are being a bit more lenient than others. People don't have the funds to pay their rent. What's going on there? Well, people do need to pay their rent. So even if the courts are closed and you can't get evicted via a judge, you still need to pay your rent. However, it is still illegal for a landlord to lock you out of your unit or to shut off your utilities. Landlords can't evict on their own. The process to be evicted means that you have to go to court and a judge has to order it. Are there any temporary changes made to eviction laws at a time of crisis like this? Not currently, but that is something that the state legislature and the governor, Ige, could consider. A lot of people who are seeking legal resources right now are English second language. Is there a way for people who are English second language to access these resources? So if you call Legal Aid Society of Hawaii, for example, we will provide you an interpreter for free. But folks should know that anytime you're engaging with a state or federal agency or any nonprofit that gets federal funds like legal aid, these state and federal agencies must provide you an interpreter and in some cases maybe even need to provide you translated materials. So for example, if you're going to court for an eviction, the court needs to provide you an interpreter so you can understand what's going on. So have all pending court dates just been indefinitely postponed? No, emergency matters are still going on. So for example, if a victim of domestic violence needs to get a temporary restraining order against her abuser, those are the kinds of cases that are still happening right now. Other than that, more general matters, the courts are closed. You can still technically file documents, like if you wanted to file for divorce, but the hearings would be postponed. 
Is there any talk of teleconferencing this, or is that not possible with the current legal system? For a long time, we've had the ability to participate in court hearings via telephone. Video conferencing, not so much, with the exception of administrative hearings. To a limited degree, you can video conference for things like Social Security hearings, and that's still going on. So we've heard a lot about working from home. I imagine litigating from home is a much different matter altogether. Mainly, it just means things are slowed down because you have to, you know, send things through the mail, or even if you want to file with court, it just it takes longer to do certain things. One of the things that comes to mind is the issue of marital law and divorce law. So are things like social distancing affecting how joint custody works? Absolutely. We have at Legal Aid have gotten a 50% increase in just callers to our uh, legal hotline. And one of the issues that keeps popping up is, is it safe to exchange kids? You know, like, for example, during spring break, a lot of people have custody orders where parents swap summer or spring break, and that's that's happening a lot. And that is one of the examples where if there's an emergency situation in terms of custody of the children and it's not safe to do the exchange, that's possibly something that a judge can hear even though the courts are closed. I think a lot of people at this time are feeling really vulnerable in terms of not having a lot of control of what they do. Do you think that having a clearer understanding of what sort of legal resources they can access during this time can return some of that sense of control and security? Yes. I, you know, I talked to someone today on the phone who was going, who was in crisis. And one of the frustrating things, both for my client and for myself, is that things keep changing. For example, with unemployment insurance benefits, it, it feels like every day the process changing. There's a new number, there's a new email, there's a new way to do it. And that just adds to the anxiety that's already there when you don't have your paycheck for the last month. So you mentioned before that you're seeing an increase in certain kinds of cases and people seeking help for certain issues. By and large, are we seeing more or less people accessing legal resources during this time? More people accessing resources. And it's changing. Um, Like for Legal Aid Society of Hawaii, for example, typically our largest caseload is family law. We're definitely seeing more calls around housing issues. And then my own kuleana is public benefits. So We're shifting from getting calls like we normally do about Social Security to unemployment insurance benefits. Have the rates of any legal issues in particular dropped? Yeah, I would say, like, I I practice immigration uh, as an example, and I'm not getting as many calls from people needing help with, like, naturalizing or getting a green card. Is that less because of a lack of awareness that these resources exist in the first place or more because of the first issue? I think it's a mix of things. A lot of our referrals come from other social service agencies. So the fact that we're in a stay-at-home order means that we, we would be getting less referrals. I also think people, like a lot of the clients I speak to, it's not that they don't have an immigration or other issue. It's just that putting food on the table is the most urgent matter. So that's how the the needs of the community are changing right now. We're seeing laws not change daily, but change pretty quickly, or at least new guidelines by the government being passed down on a daily basis here as things change. Do you think that there's going to be any sort of issue with people not understanding how these new guidelines and laws are going to be implemented quick enough? Oh, there already is confusion. Let me give you an example. So the CARES Act that was signed into law, federal law, March 27th, added pandemic unemployment assistance, and that's operated through the Unemployment Insurance Benefits Office. Well, you know, it's going on three weeks, and that program, which was established to expand benefits to people who have been left out, like people who are self-employed or gig workers, Uber drivers, for example, um, it's a great expansion of benefits, but 
the state office hasn't implemented the program yet. Like I had someone apply for unemployment insurance benefits, they're self-employed, they're actually not eligible for it, they would be eligible for this pandemic unemployment benefit. Yeah, a lot of people seem to be having that issue where they're applying for unemployment benefits. They may even be awarded the benefits, but there's simply no way for all these people to get this on a timely manner. Is anybody going to be taking legal recourse because of that? Possibly. I mean, there. I, it's important for people to know you have rights. For example, right now, the Unemployment Insurance Benefits Office is really only allowing you to apply and access the program online. Um, that is a violation of the law. People need to be able to either apply or access the program, like filing your weekly claims in person or over the phone, especially if you have limited English proficiency or you're disabled. So these are people's rights, and they're not being provided at this time. Well, I mean, there you underscore a pretty big contradiction there, that it's a right for people to access these things in person, but because of the current public health situation, it might not be advisable to seek those resources in person. Well, you know, I, I give credit to the Department of Labor and Industrial Relations. Um, going from zero to 100 is not easy. They're, you know, they, they do try to make improvements every day. So I give it to them there. But it doesn't change the fact that you need to provide an alternative way for people to access the system. You know, and frankly, other offices like the United States Postal Service is still doing in-person services. So I would hope that they would be more creative in trying to figure out how do you keep the public safe, but also how do you allow the public to access such critical services right now. So what do you think the biggest takeaways, in your opinion, are for what people need to know about their legal rights, where they stand, and how to access them during this uncertain time? The rights are there, and to some degree, it's our responsibility to enforce them. So the ones that we've been talking about, for example, with landlords, it is against the law for a landlord to lock you out or shut off your utilities. And if that happens, you can call, you know, like Legal Aid, for example. We have resources on our website that can show you what to do in the court system in order to get you back in your unit or get your utilities shut back on. So to some degree, people need to educate themselves about their rights, depending on what issue they're facing, and um, use services like Legal Aid to find out what they can do to enforce it. Tatiana Johnson from Legal Aid Society of Hawaii, thank you so much for joining us. Aloha. We've been listening to Tatiana Johnson of the Legal Aid Society of Hawaii talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino. They were talking about making sure the state's residents have sound legal footing during this crisis. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Sometimes you need a break from the chaos of the world, or maybe you just want something melodious to accompany you at work. Either way, we have just the thing. HPR2, your home for classical music, is the state's only dedicated classical music station. Just like HPR1, it's non-commercial, expertly curated, and community-supported. It offers an oasis of classical music 24-7. To learn more, head to our website or ask your smart speaker to play KIPO. This week, a pet dog in North Carolina tested positive for COVID-19. The week before that, there was news that two pet cats in New York City were also positive. 
Earlier in the year, we heard of low levels of the virus in dogs in China when the outbreak first occurred. And this month, eight big cats, lions and tigers at the Bronx Zoo came down with the disease. They may have contracted the virus from a zookeeper. Alicia Swartz is the president of the Hawaii Veterinary Medical Association. She also serves as chief of uh, service shelter medicine at uh, under a program at the University of Wisconsin's Veterinary Medicine. Schwartz says that social distancing and donning of face masks might not be such a bad idea to protect our pets. The recommendations are a couple. One is to protect your pet, just like you protect any other member of your family when you're sick. And because that there is some evidence in rare cases that dogs and cats could get infected with SARS-CoV-2 or COVID, we know that that's important. So just like any other member of your family, wearing a mask, having somebody else care for them, limiting your contact if you're sick is really important. And another thing that's very important for pet owners is to have a plan in the event they become sick and can't care for their pet. So if you end up in the hospital, you should have a backup and ideally two backups for somebody to care for your dog or cat in the event you cannot do that for a period of time until you're well. Now, this whole idea of our pets getting sick, that's just, that's not anything new. No, what we did know is from the original SARS back in 2003, um, we knew that there was a small number of cats um, and I believe one dog that were found to test positive at the time. And then experimental infection showed that cats could be infected. And the reason for this is cats are able to take that virus into their cells. And so that just makes them a little more susceptible. And so we were thinking about this as soon as we heard of a new coronavirus that was affecting people is what does this mean for our cats in particular uh, as our pets? For the last almost 20 years, I've been telling people, you know, oh, no, the cold you have can't go to your your cat or dog. And with this, the good news is that although some cat and dogs have tested positive, the dogs have not shown any clinical signs that we're aware of. So the dogs that have tested positive have not shown any clinical signs. And we have, we know that quite a number of dogs tested negative. So then the number of testing negative has exceeded the ones who are positive and no dogs have been sick that we're aware of. And the cats that have been reported to have illness including if we include the lions and the tigers, um, had mild illness that resolved pretty quickly. Um, So that is good news is that although we, we do have some knowledge that they might be vulnerable to infection, Um, It seems like it is not causing the severe illness we're hearing about in humans, thankfully. So in Hong Kong, it appears that they've put mammalian pets of people with COVID into quarantine and tested them. Um, And it's not totally clear to me if that was just to find out more information about the virus or to keep the pets safe or protected. But what we know is that a number of dogs and cats were taken into quarantine and tested. And of those, only two dogs tested positive and one cat. Um, And the dogs tested negative after testing positive. Um, They did also develop, the dogs developed antibody, which is shown, and you've heard probably of antibody in the news recently. It's a blood test that tells us that immune system mounted a response to the virus. So it's typically suggestive of infection. And, and the dogs weren't sick at all and tested negative, so they recovered from that infection. So I, I guess as we also hear more reports about asymptomatic people, I imagine there's probably asymptomatic pets that could be carriers of the virus. I think the important thing to think about is even if a pet tests positive, sick or not, um, the, the concern that pets are going to play a significant role in the spread of this virus is, is pretty much non-existent. The risk 
to humans and animals is from other humans. The human disease itself is very widespread. And so in humans, we have a much bigger concern. The good thing is cats aren't going to the grocery store and doing all of the things that we might be doing to spread it about. And so really what our concern is more protecting the pets from sick humans than from them spreading it around in these two house pets, whether it was just the cats just sneezing a lot or they were just kind of not feeling good and just moping around. We don't have a lot of information at this point, but what we do know is they had mild respiratory disease that was described as mild sneezing and ocular discharge, so a little bit of discharge from the eyes. And for better or worse, that is the symptoms of every respiratory disease in cats, um, similar to us. You get runny eyes and sneezing. It's very, very common in cats. Cats don't tend to cough as much as humans, so I would expect them to sneeze more than cough, whereas dogs tend to be coughers and sneezers. Now, I have seen some pictures on online. <laughs> Do you think we're going to have a run on a face mask for dogs and cats? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think I have seen those same pictures, and I had many family and friends send them to me, and they gave me a good chuckle. Um, but if anybody who has pets has ever tried to put um, a costume on them or a hat on them, which I have some cute little pumpkin hats I got for my cats when I was in Japan, and I know they lasted about five seconds. And, and the good news is that we know that with humans, social distancing does seem to be very effective. Like, we've seen that here in Hawaii, which is great. Um, and so, really, we just need to incorporate our pets in our social distancing plan. And, and this makes my dog, I think, even more sad than me. When we go about walks in the neighborhood, um, my two dogs, one in particular, feels the need to greet every single human he sees um, and every single dog he sees. But for right now, we're going to keep our distance to keep all of us safe. And our cats will be real pissed if they're made to, to wear masks. We know yeah, that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they would not be a fan. Neighborhood cats, some of them are more gregarious than others. And so, you know, suggestions that have been made by the CDC are keep your cats indoors, especially if you're sick, safer for them, and and also keeping them away from other people. Do you know on these two cases in New York, were they both indoor cats or indoor-outdoor? We don't have that information right now. The information that we have said that one owner was known to be sick um, with covid and the other was asymptomatic, um, which was similar to the zookeeper. But we know in humans, asymptomatic spread sounds like it is a thing or spread before your signs develop. But at this point, we don't have more information about those individual animals. Uh, they just they were taken in to see the veterinarian because they had mild respiratory signs. And really, the best thing to do right now, if your animal, your dog or cat or any pet becomes sick, is to call your vet and talk to them first. We don't want people who have COVID to go into a veterinary clinic right now um, because of the risk to humans and we may be able to provide some services for the, that pet via telemedicine and finding out how they're doing before having to come into the clinic and if needed to come in then find another person who may be less of a risk to the humans to bring them in. And then do you know is there any other advisory that's gone out just for the zoos around the country? The thing that I know is that the zoos my understanding is they have changed their handling practices to protect animals especially vulnerable species like the big cat so they are uh, many zoos are wearing um, staff is wearing masks and stuff to interact with them because even though you might think you don't have close contact, there actually is a quite bit of close contact. There's a lot of enrichment and training that happens that is in much closer contact. Um, and so they're protecting them um, on an increased level. At this point, the recommendation for pets in your house is to protect them if you are showing signs of the illness. Thankfully, pets haven't seemed to be very ill at this point. We haven't seen any serious illness and there are no reports of that 
currently, and we're watching closely. These two cats in New York testing positive has raised the question of, do, does my cat need to get tested? And at this point, there is no recommendation from all of the major groups, the CDC, the AVMA, um, all of the veterinary kind of associations and university programs. Um, nobody is, recommends that animals be routinely tested. It, there's several reasons for this. But it's not something that we need to do on a bigger spectrum. There may be situations where case by case, if we have an animal with an illness that is concerning, um, a potential history, we might want to do some testing. So that's the reason to talk to your veterinarian who will then talk to the state veterinarian to confirm that the pet is a good candidate to be tested. And then there's also some research studies ongoing to learn more about this. So testing individual animals is not going to be as helpful for us. But in the bigger picture, we are looking at, you know, is this something we need to be worried about with our cats and our dogs going forward? And that information is is currently happening. Um, and one big concern with, with people, um, and I heard this with the tiger testing positive, was, well, why did a tiger get tested when there's people who can't get tested? And um, it's important to emphasize that the reagents in the labs that are doing the testing are not the same as for humans. And so testing animals is not taking away from the humans. Um, and pets are such an important part of our life. You know, we, it is important to get that information. Okay. So just, uh, just to be real clear, the testing uh, that is done on humans is, uh, and the test kits are completely different from what you would use on a cat or a dog. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That was Alicia Schwartz, head of the Hawaii Veterinary Medicine Association and chief of shelter for shelter medicine at the University of Wisconsin Veterinary Medicine. Well, we do have to go, but up tomorrow, we check in with the futurist, we talk banking, and we explore isolation depression. Are you feeling out of sorts? Share your story. Uh, leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.